Assassins to another episode of the Dark Assassins Podcast, the show that dives deep into not just technology, but the concepts, software, and procedures behind it all, and explains it so simply that even your grandma can understand it. As always, I'm your host, the Dark Assassin. So for this episode, we are going to be doing things a little bit out of order than we usually do, mainly because the the main topic that I want to talk about is uh, in the cybersecurity realm. So I figured rather than doing a cybersecurity tip that takes up a vast chunk of the episode, uh, I figured we would just put that at the end and kind of do a cybersecurity talk, I guess, rather than tip, because while there will, I guess, be tips in there, it's kind of more of just kind of a broad overview about uh, various topics, well, specifically password authentication uh, when it comes to cybersecurity. But before we get into all of that, let's start off with this week's trivia question. So what does GNU from terms such as GNU slash Linux, the GNU Free Software Foundation, the GNU Compiler, that kind of stuff, what does GNU stand for? And GNU is spelled G-N-U, for those that uh, didn't know uh, how it's spelled, G-N-U. So what does that stand for? So that is your trivia question for the week. Now, we've talked on this podcast, we've been kind of following this story of GitHub Copilot's lawsuit. So I have an update for you guys this week. And the update for you is the lawsuit is going to trial now. So if you'll recall, I think it was back in January. Well, so originally, it was I, it was back in November when this all started, and then GitHub and OpenAI and Microsoft and all them uh, tried to get the court to throw the case out back in January, which is where we left this uh, case. But this week, a judge uh, denied the motion to dismiss the case, and it will be going to trial. So the judge said in response to that, to uh, dismissing uh, the um, motion to to dismiss the case and saying no and we're going to trial on this, he said, quote, the court needs to explore in greater depth the creative process behind Copilot and its use of copyrighted code. So if you'll recall, the, the main reason why this is a big issue in general was because developers out there were noticing that in using GitHub Copilot, they were noticing basically verbatim copy-paste uh, code supposedly generated by GitHub Copilot that is directly from um, open source software like on GitHub that is licensed and not um, giving the credit that it you know, deserves being licensed software and licensed code. So that is kind of the, the, the main reason for this going to trial, just in case either you are unaware or just kind of as a fresher because it's, it's been a while since this, this first came up and we've talked about it. So that's a little bit of a refresher. So I just thought we would talk about that because it's something I'm interested in keeping up with and I'm hopeful that you guys also find it interesting to keep up with. Now, because we mentioned we're doing the cybersecurity tip at the end, let's get into... What nerdy stuff have I been up to this week? So, you guys remember my backup script that I have not talked about in months? Well, I did some traveling this week, and I thought, what better time to give the, I believe, third times the charm test of my backup script, because originally, the third times the charm was going to be over Christmas, However, after the first run, I made the modifications, 
and then sometime during Christmas, my house decided it wanted to lose power, and I didn't configure my servers properly, so my router didn't come back online when the power was restored, and I was essentially locked out of my home lab for two weeks. Um, but now I was able to put those changes to the test and for the first time running this backup script, it was able to run to completion and worked as expected and as intended. So I am super stoked about that. Um, one interesting thing to note is according to the backup script, if you track the Ansible playbooks that are in charge of actually, you know, doing the backing up process, if you calculate all the time taken by the Ansible playbooks, it took 15 hours. But the interesting thing is if you actually see the timeout of how long the script actually took to run, it only took 12 hours. So what's going on here? Uh, who's wrong? And how is this possible? Well, I believe I mentioned it when I talked about this latest update that I made to the backup script. But what I did was I started, I used this, the idea of parallelization or running things in parallel, doing tasks at the same time rather than doing them sequentially. So the original design of the backup script was first archive the NAS, run a checksum on the NAS's archive, copy the archive over to the XServe, and then run a checksum on the XServe, and then compare the two checksums from the NAS and the XServe, and make sure those checksums match. And obviously the reason why we make sure the checksums match is to make sure that nothing funky happened during the trans the transfer process from one box to the other, um, just on the off chance that something could go wrong. Um, granted, it is using, I, I am using SSH for the, the copy, um, and it's doing, it's using the TCP protocol, which in the event that there is a drop packet or some kind of loss in data, it should be able to retransmit that. So theoretically, there shouldn't be an issue. Um, but of course, when it comes to your backups, you always want to make sure that things are good because the last thing you want to have happen is think you have good backups and then realize, oh shoot, I need to use my backups only to realize your backups are just complete garbage. Um, so that's why I have that extra check in there. It does add a significant amount of time to the backup process. Um, I think specifically about, well, technically because I'm doing things in parallel, one of those checksums is essentially nulled out, um, but still have to do one checksum in there because obviously I, I can't run the checksum on a file that isn't on the server. Um, so of course, once the file gets to the XServe, then I have, so that I have to actually run sequentially uh, running the checksum on the archive once it gets to the XServe. Um, but it roughly it takes i think about like 3 to 4 hours to run the checksum because the archive is like uh the most recent one i believe was 1.4 terabytes of data so a decent chunk of data um and obviously the hardware i'm doing these checksums on are granted they're ancient um at least for computer hardware terms so not exactly the fastest um they do however pump out a ton of heat um i noticed because i actually had access to my home lab um through my vpn that my xserve was roaring away at 11,000 rpm on all of its fans so i am very happy that i was not home for that also, I'm happy I wasn't home because according to another one of my servers, my R620, um, it was 30 degrees Celsius. At least that was the intake temperature according to the R620. And for you Americans out there, uh, it, converting 30 degrees Celsius to freedom units, that's like 84 degrees Fahrenheit. 
So I am very happy I was not in a 84 degrees Fahrenheit house because that is not pleasant. Um, so thankfully, uh, I, I did not have to be there. But the funny thing was, I believe it was the next day, I was checking uh, the, the temps and everything, uh, just because why not? I can. And uh, I saw that the temperature had dropped to like, I think 20, it was 24 or 25 Celsius, which is like 75 Fahrenheit. And I was like, ooh, the AC kicked on. <laughs> and and uh, the reason that I, I knew that was one, the temperature dropped that much. But also I looked at my, the, the graph of the, the his temperature history and like an hour ish or so before I saw a steady decline in the ambient temperature uh, being pulled in by the R620. So I, that definitely confirmed my suspicion that the air conditioner got kicked on. So I thought that was kind of funny. But we got completely sidetracked here. How did the Ansible playbook say it took 15 hours and the script say it took 12 hours? So as I mentioned, I ran things in parallel. So what I did first was rather than everything in sequence, do the archive, run a checksum, copy the archive, run another checksum, and then compare the checksums. What I'm doing now is I'm doing the archive and running the checksum, but while I'm running the checksum, I'm also copying the file over to the Xserve. And the reason why this saves so much time is because Coincidentally, it takes basically as much time to run the checksum as it does to copy the file because unfortunately my Xserv doesn't have 10 gig on it, so I can't, I'm limited to gigabit speeds. Um, but even still, even if I did have a 10 gig link between the two, I'd still be bottlenecked by the speed of how fast the hard drives can write, um, which I believe clocking the, the, the NAS would be around like 240-ish. Uh, megabytes per second, which compared to gigabit is almost twice as fast as gigabit. So it's it would have been, you know, good chunk faster, especially when you equate for how long it would take. Um, but regardless, um, every single step in this process took like somewhere in the neighborhood of like just under or around four hours to complete. So because I was able to run things in parallel, it was able to basically shave off three, four hours of time, which was pretty awesome. Um, granted, I wouldn't have been home anyway, so it wouldn't have really mattered. But it's, I mean, this is the Dark Assassins podcast. We love optimization. Um, as I mentioned before on some previous episodes, it is pretty addictive. Um, so trying to optimize everything you can. And this is honestly a great... Uh, great instance of where parallelization and running things in parallel makes some pretty good use to save you a good amount of time um, so that was the first thing and the second thing is you guys know that I love the Xserve um, I mean at this point where else are you gonna get semi-regular Xserve content other than here at the Dark Assassins podcast because I feel like on, it's obviously not an every podcast thing or even like maybe even not even every month thing, but on at least a semi-regular basis, we're talking about the Xserve. So uh, it, it's, it's I mean, we could potentially even call this the, heck, I mean, I guess I could make a quarterly podcast called the Xserve podcast or something. Um, I'm obviously not going to do that. Uh, but this is basically, as far as I know anyway, the place if you want some good old Xserve content, because as... I am I'm go, I'm going to start the tagline. Long live the Xserve. That that's that's going to be a tagline. So, long live the Xserve. We got some some good Xserve stuff here for you. So, I talked in the past when we did that episode a while back about what happened to the Xserve. I talked about the Xserve raid, which the Xserve raid, for those of you who forgot or haven't listened to that episode, which I highly encourage you to listen to, it was a fun episode. Um, the Xserve raid was basically what we call a JBOD or just a bunch of drives. 
And basically what it is, is a chassis that just holds hard drives. That's literally all it does. It just holds a bunch of hard drives. And then you have to hook that up to another computer. In obviously the case of XServe RAID, you would be hooking it up to an XServe. Um, now, when I talked about the XServe RAID, um, I did not have an XServe RAID at the time. However, between that episode and today, I managed to acquire an XServe RAID. I think actually I made that episode and I'm pretty sure within like, uh, probably within a month or two, I got my hands on one, <laughs> um, which until this week, I actually hadn't done anything with it. Like I, I got it, I powered it on to make sure it turned on and I, ran the raid administrator app i think um that apple made to basically manage the xserve raid but i couldn't actually do anything with it because it uses a technology called fiber channel which is different from ethernet and sfp and all that good stuff it looks like an sfp connector but it's not because the first thing I tried was plugging it, plugging it into my switch that I have that has some SFP ports on it. And I figured, oh, I can just plug it in there and I can access access it over the network. Yeah, no, that didn't work. Um, it, it uses its it uses a thing called fiber channel, um, which I believe each fiber channel on the XServe RAID is 2 gigabits per second, so faster than gigabit Ethernet, um, but obviously not as fast as 10 gig. Uh, but I mean, for the time, this came out early 2000s, so I mean, that was pretty good at the time, I would say. Um, but anyway, yeah, it, it, I have to say it definitely, when I got it, cost me a pretty penny, although... I can't say definitively or even for certain if it's the most expensive server I ever bought because if you consider if you if you're talking about initial cost of the server then absolutely hands down it wins in a landslide but if you're talking about like the total cost of ownership uh my R620 might be able to give it a run for its money just because of how many things on my R620 I've upgraded over the, over the years. Have I owned it for more than one year? I think so. I've owned it for a while. Over the course of ownership of my R620, I've done a decent amount of upgrades to it. Like, I upgraded the CPUs in there. I've upgraded the RAM in there on a couple of occasions. Uh, I've upgraded the drives in there. I threw a Tesla GPU in there. I mean, I've thrown a good chunk of money <laughs> at my R620. So there is a chance that in actual total cost, not just initial, the R620 wins. But by far, hands down, not even close. Initial cost, the XServe RAID was the most expensive server I ever bought, which is kind of funny because one, as I mentioned, I basically never use it. I, I believe the last time I even turned this thing on was when I first got it. I haven't turned it on since uh, because it's it takes it's it's literally just taking up rack space to be honest, which is kind of sad and ironic because I'm out of rack space and I could use more. And there's literally three U or three rack units of rack space sitting there literally doing nothing. <laughs> but at the end of the day, I mean, it looks super cool. So, I mean, what are you going to do? Um, but the, the thing is, like, like I mentioned when talking about the XServe in general, when talking about should you buy it, my answer is obviously no because it's not practical because it's in the excerpts case it's pretty slow it's super power hungry um it's loud as all heck and 
it's just not good <laughs> like from a, if you're looking for a server first off there are plenty of better options if you just want a straight up server but if you want a mac server specifically maybe you want like a uh, remote development machine that you can develop remotely or maybe you just want some for some reason you want a server to run that runs mac os why you would want that i don't really know um maybe you have automated backups going to it for other Macs or iOS devices. I don't know, but say for whatever reason you want a macOS server. As we talked about when we talked about um, in past episodes when we talked about the Xserve, there are better options like buying a used 2012 quad-core i7 Mac Mini for, I think you can get them for around the same price or cheaper because how inflated the prices of Xserves are. And it's way quieter, way more power efficient and more powerful. It's just basically better in every way, aside from the fact that I guess technically you can put more RAM in the Xserve. The Xserve you could fit more storage in, possibly, depending on how you configured the Mac Mini since it if you're going with the 2012 model specifically as two internal drive bays. Um, and then the, I guess the Xserve also has lights out management, um, which is also a, a benefit there. Um, but if you're just seeking like a Mac server per, for performance, the Xserve is by far not a good option. But I said, if you just want it for the looks, because it looks cool, then by all means, go buy one. And that's basically the reason why I bought an Xserve RAID. I didn't buy it for the practicality. I didn't buy it for the power efficiency. I didn't buy it for literally anything other than I think it looks super cool. Because in my opinion, it does. So why am I talking about it now? Well, I recently acquired a fiber channel card that Coincidentally, I didn't actually put in my Xserve, I put in my Mac Pro, and thankfully I still had a install of El Capitan on there, um, which is what it shipped to me with, um, because the Fiber Channel card was not showing up at Ventura, I think kind of for obvious reasons, because I don't believe Fiber Channel is even supported in... I don't know how long it's been since Fiber Channel was supported in macOS, but... Obviously, El Capitan had support for it, so I booted into my El Capitan instance, um, had the card plugged in, took a decent chunk of time getting all the wiring hooked up for the Xserve RAID because I had to get all the cables out of storage, uh, plug everything in, and of course, I wanted to monitor this thing's power draw because I wanted to see just how thirsty this bad boy was, and boy oh boy, it's a thirsty boy, let me tell you. So it is definitely hands down the thirstiest thing I owned because just plugging it in, not even turning it on, just, just plugging it in, drew 42 watts of power. That's right, 42 watts, not even powered on. So I was like, oh man, this is, this is not good. And if you'll remember... My Mac Pro was, I think, the previous record holder, which I want to say was like 3 watts not powered on and like 9 watts in sleep mode. So again, not great, but I mean, if you're comparing that to this Xserve rate, I mean, it's just barely even touching the power. Um, but it gets even better because when I powered that thing on and it roared to life with its fans, which... Actually, I'm not sure if... I think it's actually quieter than the Xserve, now that I think of it. Which, I guess, in fairness, isn't that hard to do with how loud the Xserve is. But, in all fairness, it was, I think, quieter. And also, to its benefit, its fans don't really ramp up that much. They just kind of are always at a static, same level volume, I guess. They don't, like, get super, super loud and then kind of idle down a little bit and then ramp up because, I mean, there's no CPU that it has to cool. Uh, so I guess it makes sense. Um, but when it was spinning up all the drives and everything, I clocked it at almost, I think it was, like, a couple watts shy of 600 watts on first boot up. And then, of course, it once it idled down, it got down to about, like, 510 
which, for context, that over single handedly doubled my home lab's idle power consumption, <laughs> which is insane. Now, one thing I have to clarify and potentially give credit for why these numbers were so high was the Exerv RAID, at least my model, is equipped with two battery modules. And basically the, the point, which was an, an additional upgrade at the time of purchase. Um, obviously, I didn't buy it new, but the one I bought happened to have them. Um, and the reason why these battery models, modules exist is in the event that, that the Exerv RAID loses power or for some reason the power gets cut, the RAID controllers on board, their cache can be still have power to them from these batteries um, to basically maintain them. Um, so it's basically a an, an additional level of protection for the, for the data integrity, at least of the RAID cache. So that's why they exist. Now, the the batteries I checked on them in the uh, the RAID administer uh, app thing that for Mac that was running on macOS Lion, um, and it showed that they weren't fully charged. Obviously, the thing hasn't been on for literally months, so they were charging up, which I believe part of the power draw. Potentially even a large chunk of that 42 watts not even powered on was going towards charging those batteries. So I I'm guessing that even that if those batteries were actually fully charged, the idle power draw would be less than 510 watts. But again, it, it still would be probably well over 400 would be my assumption, um, assuming that that was the reason, part of the reason why the power draw was so high in general. Um, but yeah, regardless, it, it is very thirsty. And it also managed to heat up my room so much it was it was like borderline uncomfortable it not borderline it was uncomfortable upstairs uh in my server room slash office by the time that i got done with it which mind you it it wasn't on for probably more than i would say a half hour tops was probably what it was on for and man did it heat up that room um so with all that said um yeah, the, the main reason, I, like I mentioned, why I, I didn't do this before was I never, I didn't have a fiber channel card to interact with the Exerv RAID. Um, and I, I recently acquired that, which is weird why I never got one before because they're, they're I think the one I got was like 10 bucks. I mean, they're, they're, they're not that expensive, like at all. So I don't know, I don't really remember, know why I was putting it off so much, probably because I, I knew I wouldn't actually use this thing, so I figured, eh. But I, I got around to doing it. And um, the here's, here's kind of the funny thing about this. So I configured it. So it came, when I got it, it was configured with 14 drives in two separate RAID 5 groups. So if you recall from when we talked about RAID, RAID 5 is essentially you have one drive of pair set aside for parity so you can lose one drive in a single array of rate a single array in raid 5 you can lose one drive and not lose any of the data um, so this was equipped with two raid 5 arrays so essentially i could lose one drive in each array and not have to worry about any data loss so just quick recap on raid um, so merged together, uh, connecting to this, I believe that was merged into one volume that was around like 4.8 terabytes, which is kind of sad because my Xserv, my actual Xserv has only has three drives in it, excluding the, the boot drive. Um, and that has six terabytes worth of storage and it only has three drives. Now, granted, the X, my actual Xserv is running in a RAID 0, which, yes, I know is a horrible idea because if one of those drives dies, all the data on it is gone. But from my perspective, the Xserv is basically only acting as a backup for my NAS at this point and is also powered off 90%, or more percent of the time, partly because I mentioned because how loud it is um, and how much heat it puts out, um, and how 
power inefficient it is. Um, but it's basically always powered off, so I don't really have... And it's a backup for my backup, so I'm not super concerned um, that it's running in a RAID 0. Um, but anyway, it is what it is. It's a risk I'm willing to take. Um, but, but, here, but yeah, here's the thing. Uh, due to the massive power draw, less than stellar storage space compared to even my own Xserve and my NAS, um, and with how loud it is and how much heat it puts out... Yeah, it's not going to be replacing my main NAS. I mean, my main NAS is isn't exactly uh, power efficient either. Um, but an idle of around like a hundred and thirty to a hundred and forty watts, to me, is a lot more appealing than five hundred and ten. I mean, I mean that's just me personally. Um, plus, I get faster speed, um, more storage space and quieter and less power so i mean yeah it's kind of hard to justify you know downgrading that much um to go for an xserve raid um now as much as i'm kind of bashing on the xserve raid for how terrible it is um i will say when i actually had everything plugged in and wrote some data to it oh man guys seeing Seeing the blinky blinky Christmas lights in action of all of those drives lighting up as the data gets written and those performance lights in the middle going up and down showing the performance, mm, chef's kiss. It was so beautiful. I mean, that that is worth the, the cost of admission right there. That That is worth the power draw. Obviously, not all the time, but uh, just something to see. And you can bet that I, I definitely took a video of that because it was just so beautiful um, that I just had to take a picture of it, or a video of it, rather. Um, so... Yeah, obviously not practical at all, but again, I didn't buy it for the practicality. I bought it for the looks because I thought it looked cool and just something cool to have. So uh, that is that, that was basically what I was up to this week. So with that out of the way, let's get into this week's cybersecurity tip. <laughs> So as I mentioned, this isn't really much of a cybersecurity tip, rather a, a cybersecurity, I guess, discussion, uh, you could say. And we've talked before on the podcast about various kinds of password authentication and password security. So the main things that we've talked about is passwords and two-factor authentication apps, like you know, using something like a, a Google Authenticator, a Duo, an Okta Verify, you know, some kind of app um, that you could use to uh, as a as a two-factor authentication. But when you talk about two-factor authentication, while generally people associate it with some kind of like one-time passcode thing from you know one of those one-time passcode generators, um, in reality. It doesn't have to be that. So there is a t when we're talking about password authentication, we're we're really talking about MFA or multi-factor authentication. When you're talking about your what you normally think of as two FA, so there's really three principles of multi-factor authentication. The first one is so it goes basically in this order: so something you know, something you have, and something you are. So let's break that down. So first off is something you know. So this is going to be like your password or a PIN number or something like that, something that you know. And then something you have is something like that authenticator app that you have, or maybe you have a UB key or some kind of hardware uh, key that you plug into your computer. Maybe you have some kind of other token or smart card. Um, you know, it can be something else, something that you have to authenticate that you are you. And then the last one is something you are. Now, how does that work? Well, this is where the bi where biometrics come in. So this is something like your fingerprints or like a face ID scan or a retinal scan or some kind of thing that, you know, scans a part of you to authenticate who you are. 
So one of the questions that I've heard people ask is, should you use biometrics? Um, so my answer to that is assuming that the biometric information is being stored on the device and encrypted, then I think it's honestly an excellent option. Um, per Me personally, every device that I have that has biometrics available to me that I can use to authenticate myself, I have set up. Um, that's just my personal use case. Um, and it's more secure, at least in my humble opinion, um, it's more secure than passwords in the sense that it you can't crack someone's fingerprint. Like, you can't, like get randomly guess someone's fingerprint or randomly guess um someone's face scan like you can't hack into a database on a some server for some organization or some social media platform and get someone's face scan to then hack their account by logging in with their face like you can't do that really the only security flaw that there exists for biometrics is being like forced against your will to log into a device or an account so if somehow you were like held hostage or something and your computer was locked and they like forcibly like moved your finger to scan the the fingerprint scanner or they forced your eyes open so they could scan your face to unlock your phone or something like that like you really really got to be in a bad situation um, for biometrics to essentially be compromised in that way so in that sense they are more secure than having just a regular passwords in that sense because they're, they're basically impossible to crack in that way um, and even even with the biometrics, basically any device that has biometrics has a fallback option to a password or a passcode. Um, and this obviously makes sense, right? Anyone that remembers using like any kind of phone with some kind of fingerprint scanner knows that if your hands are dirty, wet, or sweaty, there ain't no way in heck that that fingerprint reader is gonna be getting your fingerprint correctly and you have to enter in your passcode. Um, but even still, there are instances where they'll just, even if you your fingerprint or your face scan or whatever is valid, they'll still sometimes prompt you for uh, a password or passcode in general um, to authenticate just because as that extra layer of security so that that multi-factor authentication so as we're as i've mentioned so multi-factor authentication is basically this the more general sense of two-factor authentication so two-factor authentication is just basically take any two of those three options we talked about, something you know, something you have, and something you are, pick two of those, and that's your two-factor one, you know, your, your one and then your second. Um, now, obviously, if you can have all three, that's obviously the best, um, but some, but biometrics are generally the hardest because that takes a lot more integration on the hardware and the software perspective, um, so not every device will ha be able to even have a all three of those, but I mean, obviously, the more that you can have, uh, the better off you'll be. Um, so... As far as um, storing the data locally, I said if you can't, going back to biometrics and should you use them, if you, the data is stored locally, then in my, and encrypted, I would say by all means, I think it's an excellent way to log in because it, it's so much quicker than typing in a password and honestly, it's insanely, it's insanely convenient to just scan a finger or have it scan your face or whatever and just automatically log you in. Um, now, on the other hand, if your information is stored in the cloud, aka someone else's computer, then I would caution you against that because I have some privacy concerns about that one for obvious reasons because who knows what the owner of that system also has on you if they're storing your biometric information obviously that's very personal information so you don't exactly want you 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 kind of want to know 
who has access to that. And if it's stored on someone else's computer, you really don't. Um, So I guess that kind of raises a question. How do you know if it's stored locally on device and not sent to the cloud? Well, to be honest, there's really only one way to know, and that's asking yourself the question, do you have the source code? Because if you have the source code, you can look through that source code line by line and verify what's going on with your biometric data. You can independently verify if that data is being stored and encrypted locally on your device or if that data is being sent out to the cloud. Now, if you don't have access to <laughs> the source code, um, basically you just got to pray. I mean, that that's really the only option you have. You just got to take the company that created the device and or software at their word when they say whatever they say. So if the company is saying that they store and encrypt everything locally, you basically just got to take their word for it and hope they're not lying to you. That That's basically the only chance that you have. Um, now, there, I guess there is a caveat to that. One thing you theoretically could do is you could perform a man-in-the-middle attack on yourself to try and verify if that data actually is being stored locally. And the reason why I say man-in-the-middle attack is, generally speaking, when you are, especially if you're on mobile, you really don't have a way to capture packets on your device. Um, And generally speaking, when you're using your biometric information, um, you're generally using it to log into a device. Now, I guess theoretically you could also, it's you're also doing it when you're setting up biometrics information. So you theoretically, if you're on a, say, a laptop or a desktop or something, um, and you're setting up biometrics, uh, you could run some kind of packet capture while you're setting that up to see if there's any suspicious network activity of potentially your biometric information being sent off somewhere. Um, But the reason why I say man-in-the-middle attack is because, like I said, on mobile devices, you don't really have that option. And generally, when you're using a device, you're using it to log in where you wouldn't really be able to run a packet capture necessarily. Um, So that's where the the man-in-the-middle attack comes in. So basically what you do is you force your device to go through some other device, hence the the man-in-the-middle, And on that device that you're routing all of this traffic through, you run a packet capture on. And here you can basically see if there's any spooky or nefarious network traffic that could possibly allude to your biometric information being sent off to someone in the cloud. Whether that's whoever that is, you could potentially be able to see that. So that would essentially be the only way that I could think of that you could verify if you're, de- well, you, potentially you couldn't even verify it depending on if they were trying to mask how they're they're sending the data out. Um, but that would be really in my, the, at least right now, the only way I could think of to potentially see um, if your data is indeed being stored locally on the device rather than going out to the cloud but even even that you wouldn't necessarily know if it's being encrypted or not so you just again have to take the company's word for it um but for instance um as far as companies that say they encrypt things on their device i will say and i'll have links for all this down in the in the show notes if you want to take a look at it for yourself uh, both apple and microsoft both say in their documentation that they store everything locally on the device and encrypt it. So again, you can take that for what you will. Uh, but in for instance, we'll start off with Apple here. Um, so Apple devices, again, according to their documentation, all biometric data, uh, face ID and touch ID is stored encrypted in the secure enclave on device. And the key to decrypt it and, and the, the data is can only be accessed by the secure enclave. So basically, according to Apple, even if your device got 
say even Apple managed for whatever reason took your device or someone was trying to force Apple to uh, decrypt the biometric data, according to Apple, because it's stored in the secure enclave, uh, the only thing, I guess, in this case, that would be able to, one, decrypt the data and even have the key to decrypt the data is the secure enclave on the system. So basically, there's there's no way to get that data off there. Again, according to Apple's documentation, their operating systems are not open source, so there's no way to independently verify that. But also, according to their doc- their documentation, also included in this data that's encrypted is the mathematical representations of your face uh, for Face ID. So basically, as we talked about um, when we talked about some AI stuff and how anyone could make an AI, um, basically behind the scenes, what's going on, AI isn't detecting images. It's just detecting numbers and making patterns and recognizing patterns and numbers that's really all it's doing so basically these number patterns that it recognize that it associates with your face all that math that goes behind you know doing that that's also stored in the secure enclave Um, now according to microsoft's documentation all of windows biometric data or as they call it the enrollment profile uh, is also stored locally on the device and does not roam and when they say does not roam, that basically means if you are on some kind of business or corporate network, or maybe you're just a baller, have a baller home lab where you have active directory set up in your home, because there are some people that do that. Um, if you have any kind of active, active directory set up, the biometric data is only stored on the device you logged into. Basically meaning if you wanted to log into another system on the network that's using Active Directory, you would not be able to use biometrics on that other device unless you set it up on that device as well. Um, So that, honestly, in my opinion, is while it could potentially be inconvenient for some people and some people might find it inconvenient, I think that's honestly a fantastic feature for security purposes. Um, so all the, the fingerprint data is stored in, in, in some cases, again, according to Microsoft's documentation here, um, some of the finger, some fingerprint data is actually even stored on the fingerprint module itself, not even in Windows. Um, but again, that would obviously depend on manufacturer and all that stuff. Um, and also according to Microsoft's documentation, All the data is encrypted and only accessible by Windows Hello, so no other user or process can access it aside from Windows Hello, which is the thing that Microsoft calls their their biometric authentications, whether that's a fingerprint or the the facial recognition thing. Um, That is uh, what Microsoft calls it. So according anyway to both Apple and Microsoft, again, take them at their word here because you can't see the source code. Uh, But according to them, all of your data is stored locally on device and encrypted. So for what it's worth, that's at least that's at least a good good thing. Um, Now, also on the topic of path password, not password, uh, account uh, authentication and such, uh, passwords is another one. Now, one, I guess, I don't know if it's necessarily a hot topic, but one topic that always comes up in when talking about passwords is how often should you be resetting your passwords? There's always there's this general guidance out there that you should be resetting your passwords every X number of days. Some say 60, some say 90 you know, but generally in any kind of corporate or business environment, including like schools and such, they will make you change your password every so many days. Now, if done and implemented correctly, passwords are stored as hashes. Now, basically what that means is assuming it's done correctly, (laughs) there have been instances where sites have been hacked and the databases are just full of plain text passwords what's shame on you if you are are storing passwords as plain text do not do that Um, but 
if you're if the a company is following good principles all the passwords should be stored as hashes now if you're not familiar with what hashes are or how they work basically what happens is it's a it's a one-way function like you cannot given a hash you can't easily compute what was used to generate that value so if i give it say hello world it'll always output one result but you can't take that result and get hello world out of it that's basically the point of a hash function um, so it's really easy to check if passwords match because all you have to do is take the hash of the password and if the two hashes match you know that they gave the right password um, so theoretically because passwords are stored as hashes and are you know harder to be hacked in that sense how are passwords hacked if they're stored as hashes so the way that passwords actually get hacked from like leaked uh, account information is by using what's called rainbow tables and what rainbow tables are are basically a pre-computed list of passwords and their associated hash values so you can basically run the database of passwords that you hacked from x company and see if you have any matches in that database for values in your rainbow table and because you already pre-computed all those hash values you can immediately see if you have any matches um, so that's generally how passwords are hacked um, through these kinds of data breaches um, now with that said if your password is very secure like your it's you know super long like maybe you have like i don't know 10 12 14 characters or more or something like that and you're using a lot of numbers and special characters upper and lowercase letters you know all that good stuff that makes up makes up a good password the likelihood of your password being in either a dictionary that's used for a attack like this or in one of the rainbow tables is honestly pretty low i mean it's obviously not zero but if you're using like say a password manager that has like a randomized feature that can basically randomize super secure passwords for you that just look like gibberish the chance of that being in one of these pre-compiled rainbow tables is obviously not zero but very 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 slim so the likelihood that you even being affected by a data breach is again very low assuming that these companies are following good cybersecurity and good programming and development principles i.e hashing their passwords in their databases now obviously i'm not saying if a company gets hacked that you have an account with don't even bother changing your password because you have nothing to worry about chances are you probably don't but just out of an abundance of caution you still should change your password in an event like that because there have been instances where companies don't actually hash their passwords and in that case it doesn't matter how strong your password is if the password isn't hashed um so let so with that said if there isn't a is a breach um, for an account that you have, um, the company that houses the houses the account that you have the account with, if there's a breach, you obviously should still change your password. Um, but here's where I want to touch on the part of you should be constantly changing your password every X number of days or weeks or months or whatever. So I have a problem with this, and the first one is it's annoying i don't i'm assuming multi many of you have had this experience where you were forced to change your password constantly and you always got annoyed that oh, i have to go change my password again and two it honestly promotes bad passwords and the reason i say this is if you're constantly having to change your password and in some cases for multiple accounts multiple times it's going to be almost impossible to remember. So unless you're using a password manager, there's no way you're going to be able to remember those passwords. So you're going to make it easy to remember those passwords. 
which promotes having bad passwords, which if you have a bad password, the likelihood of your account being compromised goes up, which is not good. The point of changing your password constantly is to make the likelihood of your account getting hacked go down, not up. And the reason why I say this promotes bad passwords is how many of you out there, when prompted to change your password, just changed one number at the end of it and called it a day? I'm willing to bet that a lot of you have because I myself have been guilty of that in the past, which is not good because, like I said, because if you're just changing one number, I know I've done it. I'm sure many of you have done it. If I'm an attacker, I get a database full of passwords and my rainbow tables give me some hits and I try, say, at a password and it doesn't work, if I see the password is, say, secure password one, you know what I'm going to do? Secure password two. Secure password three. Secure password four. And just increment that sometimes to try to see if I can get a hit. Because chances are, if you're like me, um, I, I don't do this anymore because I use a password manager now, but in the past... I would literally just increment the number at the end of my password. So if in this case, if it was secure password one, my next password would be secure password two. Obviously, I didn't use that password because it's horrible. But just for context, that's essentially what I was doing. And I'm sure there are many of you out there that either either do that or did that as well. So this obviously is not good passwords because it's pretty easy to figure out what other potential passwords could be if an attacker knows that this organization is forcing you to reset your passwords every few days, or I guess not every few days, but like every few months, uh, rather. Um, so this is one of the problems that changing your password constantly has. Now, on the flip side, the main reason why people, at least in the past, suggested that you change your passwords frequently was because if you changed your password frequently, that would reduce the likelihood or that in the event that there was a database breach, for example, the time that an attacker would have to then hack you is greatly reduced if you're constantly changing your password every few months rather than never changing it at all. Similarly, if someone sneakily hacked your password without any kind of data breach to say maybe they just got lucky and hacked, hacked you and got your password, the time that they have access to your account and time that they can do damage is again reduced because you are frequently updating your password every 60 days, 90 days, whatever the case may be. But one issue I have to that counter argument is if I'm an attacker, right, and I got your, say, your email account, I got your password for that, or even worse case, I got the account for your, I got the password for your bank account. Am I honestly just going to sit there on your password and just wait it out for a while? No, if I'm an attacker, I'm going to wreck havoc as soon as I can because I don't want to squander this opportunity. So if someone gets your password, the chances of them just sitting on it are probably pretty low, I would say. So, I mean, if someone gets your password, you're done anyway, and you want to change your password ASAP. So, I mean, I'm, I'm not sure really how much resetting your password on a semi-regular basis actually improves your security because like there don't get me wrong there are potential benefits as we as we mentioned i mean if you're constantly rotating through different passwords not rotating but like changing your password every x amount of time um the chances of you have potentially even having to worry about a database breach are again reduced because say um it comes out that uh, X company's database of accounts was hacked two months ago. Um, I mean, if you changed your password a month ago, so after this breach happened, then you don't have to worry about anything because your password's already changed. Um, so there, there definitely are some benefits, but I would argue just 
create one super strong password that you can remember, whether you just have a really good memory or you save it, or I guess in my my personal opinion, the better option would be save it in some kind of password manager um, and make sure, just, just have one super strong password for each account rather than having weaker passwords that you're iterating numbers on or in general weaker passwords that you're constantly changing. I would say that the better option is create a super strong password and then the only time I personally think you really need to change it is if you hear of a data breach of a company and it's revealed that password information um, that like the account database has been hacked or otherwise compromised or say 200,000 of the the users had their potentially had their accounts compromised. In those instances, then I would still recommend you change your password even if you have a super strong one just because the off chance that the company is dumb and did not hash the passwords. Um, obviously in, in an ideal world, well, I guess in an ideal world no one would ever get hacked, uh, but in an ideal world more I realistic ideal world i guess um every company would hash passwords in their databases so if you had a super strong secure password like that you wouldn't have to worry in those cases but even still if there is data breaches i and passwords work potentially compromised i still would recommend changing your password but personally for me i think resetting your password every two months three months whatever the case may be is overkill and i think just in general it generally speaking promotes weaker passwords especially at least from my personal experience and from experience that i've heard from others as well um so yeah that that's that that's basically kind of what i wanted to talk about when it comes to um account security because I know we've talked about, you know, passwords and two-factor before, but we never really talked about biometrics, and I thought it was something good that we should hit on. And then the idea, going back to how often you should reset passwords, that's honestly one thing I've been thinking about for a while. I just never really had... I, I guess I just never got my, my thoughts together on it, so this was kind of, a, a I guess, a brain dump, if you will, of, of my my opinion and thoughts on the matter from from the from the the security perspective of does it actually help you um now obviously i think in general like when this this uh idea of you should be resetting your password frequently first came out password managers i don't believe were really even a thing back then like your password manager was you wrote it down on like a in a notebook or you wrote it down on a sticky note and kept it in an envelope or something um there really wasn't a password manager so having to being able to create super super strong secure passwords and actually remembering them was wasn't really a thing so in that sense like constantly changing your password actually could provide some serious benefit because if your password if you're constantly creating changing your password and they're not you know incrementing the number at the end um but making it a little more memorable that but in general just less secure changing that more frequently i could i can actually see the benefit there but obviously now with the age of password managers and how easy it is to make super strong secure passwords and storing them that you kind of sort of don't even have to remember them um i think that that advice is kind of outdated in my personal opinion so that was i guess your cybersecurity discussion rather than tip uh for the week so Gil, before we wrap up here we have to get back to our trivia question so this week's trivia question is what does gnu or gnu stand for from terms such as GNU Linux, the GNU Free Software Foundation, GNU Compiler, etc. So what does GNU stand for? If you said GNU's not Unix, congratulations, you are right. And if you're wondering what the GNU's in GNU's not Unix stands for, it also stands for GNU's not Unix, so it's it's basically a recursive infinite loop of GNU's not Unix forever. So 
I thought that was fun. Um, that was your trivia question. Hopefully uh, some of you got it right out there um, because it's one thing that I've kind of, I, I've, I knew about it, but it's kind of one of those things that like I always forget what it actually stands for, and then I remember, oh yeah, that's what it stands for. Uh, but for the longest time, I had no idea what it meant. And uh, when I first saw GNU's Not Unix, I was like, no, nah, I can't be it. Uh, but no, that's it. That that's that's the acronym. So props to GNU for a fantastic acronym. Um, and that is going to do it. So if you enjoyed this episode, I ask that you leave it a rating and review and subscribe to the Dark Assassins podcast if you haven't done so already. Also be sure to share with a friend or family member who might be interested in learning more about biometrics or just password authentication and the three pillars of password authentication in general. Also, if you have any questions about this episode or you have any questions for future episodes or topics you want me to cover, shoot me an email at contact at darkassassinsinc.com. There is a link down in the show notes below for that. And that's going to do it for me in this episode of the Dark Assassins podcast. Until next time, my fellow assassins, remember... Bull nothing equals true. If action not equal to null, return true. I'll see you next time on the Darkness Hats Podcast.